Hi, everyone. Today, we have Cole Thaler joining us. He's an attorney who co-directs the Safe and Stable Homes Project at the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation. In this role, he helps low-income Atlanta tenants find free legal representation. Before that position, Cole worked at the Georgia Legal Services Program and Lambda Legal. The reason we're excited about him today, though, is because he is a co-founder and president of Paws Between Homes, a nonprofit animal welfare organization that provides temporary fosters for people of pets, um, people who have pets who lose their housing. And so right now, you know, this is a really critical time. And so we're so excited that he's able to join us today. Also, a good friend, um, Amanda Arrington, the Senior Director for Pets for Life at the Humane Society of the United States, is the co-host today with Cole, and she's going to be talking about the issues surrounding the impending eviction crisis and how we in the animal sheltering world can really prepare and help support each other through this. But I think the most important thing that I want to share about our guest, Cole Thaler, is that he shares his home with two rescue kitties, Sam and Obi, and hopefully he'll introduce us to them later. But for right now, Cole, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for inviting me, Catherine. Amanda, let's talk about this eviction crisis and let's talk about it in terms that people can really wrap their heads around what does it really mean and you you shared some really interesting information during a webinar the other day that was it was very compelling and helped to help me really understand sort of the enormity of what we're looking at would you mind just sort of setting the stage here and framing the conversation that we're going to have with cole Yes, absolutely. And Cole can add to this or correct anything that I get wrong. And I just want to start by saying that my first opportunity to co-host with you, Catherine, I'm so excited to do that. And I'm honored that I get to do it with Cole as the guest. Um, so to sort of give some, a little bit of, of groundwork on, on what the eviction crisis that is, is coming up due to the COVID pandemic um, looks like and why the, the pandemic has compounded an already um, area of, of, of real um, impact on, on low-income people, especially around affordable housing and safe and stable housing. So before COVID, there was not a state in the country that had a sufficient supply of affordable and available housing for low-income families, not a single state. So we were already in an affordable housing crisis before COVID. And now what has happened due to COVID um, is that the economic hardships that tens of millions of people are facing due to their, their job loss, um, being underemployed, and more recently, just at the end of July, the unemployment benefits that people were receiving ended that have been um, under the CARES Act or have been significantly reduced. And so we're really at this point where there are tens of millions of people who are, are facing the reality of not being able to pay their rent or pass due rent um, that, that was sort of being protected under some eviction moratoriums. Now those have expired and haven't been renewed. So people are really facing a, a tough reality of, of what they're going to do. And, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. What I found interesting when we were talking the other day was 
and I'm not sure that people, you know, think about this. Once the moratoriums are lifted, all of the rent that was paused is due. So you're not having to come up with just that one month's rent. You're having to come up with several months. And so that is really sobering. Yeah, Cole, can you talk about that a little bit of what the difference is between eviction moratoriums and then like rental support and rental forgiveness programs? Sure. Um, and, and before I answer that question, Catherine, I think I may have inadvertently misled you to think that I only live with cats. I actually have four dogs as well. <laughs> uh, and, and actually there's a third cat. Uh, so yes, uh, seven permanent residents of, of my home and then a, a rotating cast of uh, fosters and rescues in and out. So, Oh, Amanda, you know what that means. He's one of us. He's <laughs> absolutely one of us because I have three cats, three dogs, and a husband. <laughs> so yes, we, uh, we're, we're cut from the same cloth for sure. Um, but, but yes, in all seriousness, it, it's actually a really um, frightening moment to be in because uh, as, as Amanda was alluding to, there, there really was, it's, it's, it's over now, a federal moratorium on certain evictions. So the federal government passed the CARES Act back in March, and that paused evictions for certain types of housing, housing that received federal rent subsidies like Section 8 vouchers and housing that had federally insured mortgages. Um, and that imposed a 120-day stay or moratorium on evictions. But that, um, first of all, that only applied to a subset of housing. A lot of housing doesn't, was not affected at all. A lot of rental housing was not affected by that moratorium. And the CARES Act, that section of the CARES Act has now expired um, starting uh, in late July. Those landlords were allowed to give their tenants 30 days notice um, to pay their rent or leave. And that 30-day window expired uh, in late August, just uh, this week. So that means that there is no federal protection at all anymore for renters. Um, the, the executive order that the president signed does not actually pause or stop any evictions. There are some states and some counties and cities that have their own moratoriums. Um, but it's a real patchwork and, and they don't do that much. And uh, anyone who didn't pay rent while that federal moratorium was in effect, they still owe that money, as you said. Now, under the federal law, without going too much into the weeds, the landlords can't charge certain late fees. So there is a little bit of uh, grace there, but all of those months of rent are still owed. And so tenants at this point uh, may owe four or five or more months of rent, and they need to come up with what is probably thousands of dollars if they want to avoid eviction. And if you got laid off or furloughed because of COVID, that, you know, it may as well be a million dollars. People just don't have that money. So the, the executive order was really a suggestion to some of the federal agencies. So Health and Human Services and the CDC, um, what the order did was, was giving um, sort of instruction to those agencies to consider um, what would make, 
what would be reasonable and apply moratorium. So it was not in any way an extension of the moratorium that existed and really just left things open and, and uh, in my opinion, intentionally vague and misleading to the public. Um, and so there are already people who are in the type of housing that Cole mentioned um, that are under that were under the, the federal moratorium, which is, is subsidized housing through a federal program or, or financed through a federal program, um, who are already getting their eviction notices this week. So when we talk about the housing that has had federal protection versus the private sector housing, What's the ratio there? How many homes are we talking about? So the Federal CARES Act, which had that eviction moratorium, applied to about a third of the rental housing stock in the country. There's estimated to be about 43, 44 million rental units in the United States, and about 12 million or those of those, give or take, um, were affected or protected by that eviction moratorium. But again, that has expired now, so that um, protection doesn't exist. If you're lucky enough to live in a state that has a statewide moratorium or a city or a county, you're, you may still be protected, um, but there's nothing on the federal level at all. And, and I will say that state-wise, it's sort of, um, every day, I feel like there's another state that the moratorium is expiring, but as of this week, the, the latest number that I saw was there are still um, 20 states that have an eviction moratorium in place, and that has already decreased from 43 states in May. So um, more and more states on, on a regular basis are expiring and, and not renewing those moratoriums. Well, so if we're looking at 44 million rental homes in America. And we know that 72% of renters have pets based on data that we've researched. That is significant. What does that mean for animal shelters? What are we supposed to be doing about this? Yeah, I think it's it, the same homeless, homeless shelters for humans are asking themselves the same questions uh, that animal shelters are asking and need to be asking, which is that how are we possibly going to be able to deal with this avalanche or, or tidal wave? You know, you can choose the, the natural disaster uh, that for your metaphor, but, you know, they all seem apt there is just a huge, huge number of households uh, with pets that are going to be losing that housing. The, most of those people who are facing eviction don't have a strong defense, don't have a real legal argument to prevent that eviction from happening because they've simply stopped paying rent because they're not able to pay rent. Um, and that means that sooner or later as the courts start processing this big backlog of, of eviction cases, people are going to be put out. And if folks um, have the luxury or the privilege of some money in the bank, they may be able to lease uh, new housing. Maybe if their jobs have started back up or if there's money they can borrow from friends or family to pay first month's rent and the security deposit at a new home, they can land on their feet. Um, but 
the fact is if they had money in the bank, they would have used that to pay the rent that, that they haven't paid. So people are going to be look, couch surfing, sleeping in cars, uh, sleeping under bridges, and probably bringing their pets to shelters and surrendering them. And, and that brings us to the organization that you run, Pause Between Homes, and, and why that's important um, at any time to have a, a support service in place for people who are experiencing housing challenges and housing insecurity, but it's more important than ever. So can you talk a little bit about that work, how you're set up, and what it is that's being offered, and then hopefully um, that is a program and a model that other groups and other shelters and animal service agencies could replicate. Sure. So Pause Between Homes, we, uh, we spent, uh, I and a, a team of many other wonderful people spent most of 2019 meeting, brainstorming, planning to launch uh, an organization that would, that would do what we do. Um, we knew, we, we thought there was a hole in, in the safety net. Um, Atlanta, where I am, has a wonderful organization called Ahimsa House, which provides temporary fosters to the pets of domestic violence survivors as they're leaving the abusive situations that they're in. Um, and they do just outstanding work. And I can't, I can't say enough good things about them, but there was nothing equivalent for people who were just getting evicted, who might not be survivors of violence, but who were just getting either evicted or foreclosed on or kicked out of their homes. Um, and so we decided that we would put our heads together and, and come up with something to fill that hole in the safety net. And I knew from my, my paying work with the Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers Foundation that when people do face evictions, there is commonly a period of, of housing instability, of couch surfing. We have a lot of clients who are living in extended stay motels for a period of time. Um, uh, sort of just cobbling together a place here, a place there. But usually the family is able to get back on its feet in new housing within a few months after this period of instability. So Pause Between Homes, which officially started serving clients in January of 2020, no idea what was about to hit, um, we provide foster homes for up to 90 days to the pets of people who are losing their housing. So we do have a cap of 90 days because in our experience, that's roughly the length of time or the, the duration before that pet owner or guardian is able to restabilize and reclaim their pet. And so what do you think in, in the work that you've been doing? And I know 2020 has brought a lot of surprises and things that were unplanned, but challenges or, or, or realistic expectations that shelters can have in engaging um, in this type of work. I, I think it's pretty new and different for most shelters in, in providing temporary foster homes or, or placement for animals that are going back to their people and to their families. Um, and so it is, is a pretty novel approach, one that I, I think COVID made us realize was, was necessary. And now this eviction crisis is, is just giving us even more of an indication this is something we need to have in place really for, for the, the future in general. Um, and so what, what have you learned from the cases that, that you have um, been involved with for the people and families you have supported that you think shelters could most learn from? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think it really is the necessary, a necessary program because if you just, I mean, if you try to imagine shelters trying to absorb the volume of owner surrenders that, you know, we, we can predict is coming, it, it's just not possible. Um, even though, you know, shelter um, counts may be down somewhat because of, of people adopting pets um, who have been working from home during COVID, you know, what, what's coming is just truly unprecedented uh, in scope. So I think it, it's really necessary to look to uh, a different type of, of service model. Um, and the good news is there are so many people who want to foster now um, and who are able to foster who maybe weren't when they were working full-time outside the home um, and you know it's that bond between the owner and the pet that's what we all um, you know that that's the ideal that that's that's what we're all working towards is a pet in a loving home with a loving owner who is able to care for it in, in a stable setting and if the pet has that but they don't have it today they but they, they'll have it 90 days from now or 100 20 days from now or whatever it is, you know, let's facilitate that. Let's, um, let's uh, redirect some of our resources um, to making that happen. Um, and it's, you know, there are obviously costs making sure that the foster, our fosters, we, we promise our fosters, they don't have to spend a dime on the pets. We provide food and supplies, um, bowls, leashes, veterinary care, um, within reason we don't have the resources to provide um all uh all veterinary care but we're able to provide vaccinations spay and neuter um and so um you know we make sure that the fosters have those tools at their disposal and then uh we uh we just go from there and it is incredibly rewarding at the end of that for us the 90-day window when we are when we do the reunifications um, I'm going to point out that we have um, information about paws between homes and, and the sample documents and agreements you were so generous to, to share at the uh, um, in the eviction toolkit that um, the association and HSUS put out just this week. And so that is at animalsheltering.org um, backslash eviction dash toolkit. And I'm sure, Catherine, we can provide a link in some way to that. But um, we have a lot of great information in that toolkit, including um, all of the agreements and documents that you would need in order to get started so you don't have to reinvent the wheel and so you can feel comfortable and confident in using things that have already been tested. And I, I have to give credit. We didn't draft those from scratch. We borrowed from a Himza house, which does their own temporary foster program. So we all have been sharing resources and learning from each other as we go. But um, it, it really, to get back to your original question about, about challenges, you know, what I have found is important is to sit down with both the pet owner and the foster and go over those contracts line by line and make sure they understand the rules. Um, that this is not a typical rescue that is trying to rehome an animal. These animals have homes. These pets have homes. They have loving owners. Um, and we, we tell our fosters, and it's in our contract, that they are temporary guardians. Uh, that, that's all that they're doing. Um, it's very important, but it's, it's just um, until that, that permanent guardian is able to reunite with the pet. So I think getting clear understanding about um, what we can do and what we can't do uh, is, is key up front. Have you found in your experience thus far 
that the foster volunteers are reluctant to return the pets because they've either A, fallen in love with them, or B, are challenged with some biases towards the circumstances of the original owner's um, displacement of housing? You know, I will say, um, first of all, we're a relatively new organization. So um, our pool of experience experiences are, are is somewhat limited. Um, but having said that, I have not found that. I, the fosters know going in that this is short term. Um, so they, you know, they know, um, at least theoretically, not to get attached. I know that's easier said than done. But I think every one of us who's fostered knows that, you know, it's bittersweet when the time comes to say goodbye, that you you loved that animal and now they're they're going to move on. Um, I do think that the second piece of your question is is harder. And, and frankly, it has been challenging for me um, to see the the foster homes that we put our pets in are sometimes really beautiful, um, just lovely homes, well-kept, um, you know, we've had fosters who are physicians, who are attorneys, and just n very uh, privileged homes. And the homes that we return the pets to are very modest, and sometimes it can be jarring to process that contrast. And, um, you know, the pet owner, while the, the pet is in foster care with us, is, is dealing with housing instability. And they may be, in fact, one, we had one pet owner who was sleeping outdoors while his dog was in a beautiful home in a, a luxury neighborhood of Atlanta. And, you know, it, it's, it's cognitive dissonance. You know, why shouldn't, shouldn't our humans be in, in comfortable and safe and stable housing too? Of course they should. That's a problem that we as a society need to work on. Amanda, help us understand tools and techniques that you've employed through Pets for Life to help, especially those of us who have worked in animal welfare for a long time, how do we set aside our biases? How do we recognize that a person living in poverty is absolutely worthy of the love of a pet? I, I think in an interesting way, COVID has opened a lot of people's eyes to just how close each and every one of us could be um, to experiencing financial struggles. It, it's really either brought that into someone, into people's consciousness for the first time, or maybe has served as a reminder that, that we all are um, in a place where that could happen to us. Or when you sort of get that brought into your thinking, you all of a sudden do pause and, and take a step back and, and say, how have I been judging others around their financial means? And how have I been elevating myself in, in sort of a, a position of, of privilege and, and righteousness around making these determinations? And, and I, so I think that that has brought a lot of conversation into animal welfare that is long overdue and very much needed. I think there has to be a very direct and concerted effort by animal welfare to do a couple of things. One is, is we have to acknowledge um, that we are a predominantly white middle to upper class field and that that gives us a really limited lens in which to um, create our programming, make policy, um, the decisions um, that we participate in. And so we have to bring 
um, more diversity into our field and we have to be much more inclusive of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives and in an authentic way value um, different ways of thinking and, and different ways in which people go through life that that's going to make our movement stronger and more just and more fair then we have to do that in, in a really direct way um, and then we have to hold ourselves accountable and hold each other accountable um, that that we can't we can't ignore um, the the divisiveness that can exist within our field and within the world and the disparities that exist and i think that's one of the ways we have found most effective in pets for life both with our own teams with our mentorship partners and then kind of our, our trainings um, with with the animal welfare especially companion animal welfare welfare field at large is that we have to talk about how we got here that we can't really do the best work in the present and we can't move forward into the future in a way that that is going to be inclusive if we don't understand the past and, and that the past isn't something that just happened yesterday, that the past really has created where we are today. Um, and so really learning and, and being open to um, having a true and accurate um, view of history and, and what has been legal and government sanctioned and, and creating um, disparities in income and in all other ways. And, and that's one of the things that I actually wanted Cole to talk about is that um, there are such, um, there, there's a huge racial gap in home ownership in the U.S. And so that means that you have communities of color that have a much higher rate of renters. And so when we're talking about affordable housing and safe and stable housing, and especially around evictions, um, that you have communities of color that are much more impacted by these issues. And so I thought that you could speak a little bit to that of, of how that came to be. You know, it's one of the, I guess, silver linings of, of all of the, the chaos and crises that we're having in society now that these silos that we've been working in are starting to break down. Uh, these walls are coming down and animal welfare advocates are learning about the importance of housing justice and housing stability and housing advocates are learning um, that if they want to keep families together that means the pets too and they need to learn from animal advocates and shelter directors. Um, and the work that's going on with the movement for black lives and uh, racial justice and protests against police brutality against black people they're all connected. Uh, we have to learn from each other. We have to work together. And, and housing stability in particular, and it's not an accident uh, that we are in a situation where it's communities of color that are being evicted at such greater rates than white communities, or that home ownership is so much, rates of home ownership are so much higher among white people you know, that's by design. And, and it's not because of COVID. It started decades and decades ago with policies that were completely legal, laws that were put into place. Um, redlining was uh, a policy where mortgage lenders would carve out on maps, literally red lines around the quote unquote good neighborhoods, which were white neighborhoods, and the less good, which were racially mixed or black, um, and it, only in the, the good white neighborhoods would they underwrite mortgage loans. 
And so it was just natural that the people who were able to buy homes were white. And we're still in the situation where the primary way that we generate wealth is through home ownership. You know, most people's most valuable asset is their home. And that creates wealth that is then passed down from generation to generation. And um, black families and black generations have been in large part left out of, um, of that access. Um, it used to be legal, perfectly legal, to have what's called restrictive covenants in deeds, where if someone was selling a house, it would be written right into the deed, this house can only be occupied by a white family, by a white person. So you literally could not buy homes, uh, certain homes and in certain neighborhoods if you were not white. Um, and, and it goes on and on and on. There are all different kinds of ways that uh, people of color and black people in particular were excluded from um, quality housing, safe housing, valuable housing, um, and, um, and, and that really has set the stage to, to where we are now, which is an eviction um, wave that is about to hit us that is going to fall uh, and harm primarily families of color, households of color, and Black people in particular. And this is not, you know, there's been article and article, uh, articles published about this, studies published about what's coming, not to mention COVID-19 is hurting families of color and Black families more as well. And that has to do with access to healthcare. So, you know, we, we have to learn from what's happening. You know, we have to learn from the leaders who are out there in the streets, um, protesting, uh, lobbying, um, trying to make things change for the better. You know, this can be a real opportunity for people who haven't been looking around and, and noticing what's going on and understanding the history to, to do that. And we can work together and, and actually make some real change. So Cole, I would like to, to leave everybody with some really tangible action items around the eviction crisis. And so we've talked a bit about what shelters can do, what organizations can be preparing for and considering, but just as an individual, what, what would you say and what could you suggest that people do if, if they really wanna advocate for um, affordable housing and for renter protections, especially during this time? Well, I think first, uh, there, there may be a bit of a learning curve. I think folks who haven't done work in this area or really been even following the area uh, or the topic of housing need to educate themselves. Uh, do some Googling and check your local newspaper, see what, do a search for the word eviction and see what's in there. Um, and every city and every county has housing advocates and housing attorneys. Uh, legal aid attorneys uh, who are out there doing this work and, and need help. So I think step one would be to, to figure out what you don't know and then go looking for it. Call your local legal aid office. Um, believe me, uh, speaking as a lawyer, we would love to have these calls. Say, you know, I'm a, an animal advocate uh, in your community. How can I learn more about what's going on with housing and evictions here in this town, in this city, and how can I help? And, and they will very quickly get you up to speed. They may have trainings you can watch and they'll help you understand the priorities. In some places, the priority is, is raising the minimum wage. 
which may not seem at first glance to be about housing, but it absolutely is because rents have gone up while wages have stayed low in a lot of places. And so we need to make sure that people can afford, you know, decent quality, uh, safe housing. They may tell you that there's a bill in the legislature and they need you to, to get on the phone and make some calls and, and post on social media. Um, they may tell you about a, a, a march that's happening or, you know, some other um, issue that that's pressing in your community. So reach out, you know, you're not, no one has to do this work alone. That, that's one of the great things is that there are others who have been doing this work. They would love your help. And same thing for any housing advocates who are doing this work or housing attorneys saying, gosh, I never thought about the dog. Um, I never thought that, you know, I never thought of that as a member of, of the family, but, you know, but it, it really is. So reach out to your local shelter director uh, or, or local rescue and say, you know, how can I learn from you? What kind of help do you need? So we can, we can learn from each other. That, that is perfect. And I think a lot, great advice that people will, will listen to and take advantage of. And I will just say that for animal advocates, we have to be involved with and engaged on this issue because if we want to keep pets in their homes, we have to keep people in their homes. Well, I, as always, love learning from you, Amanda. So thank you for guest hosting. Well, I have to say, Cole, it's been a pleasure meeting you and congratulations on all the amazing work that you've done in your career, but huge congratulations to actually founding and starting Pause Between Homes. And it's great to have you as a leader and a, and a resource for this very important issue. So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, thank you Cole. I, I really am honored that my first co-hosting gig was <laughs> with, with you. Um, I will always remember it, but it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And I just second everything Catherine said, that we are so lucky to have your voice and um, to have your expertise. It is needed now more than ever. So thank you very much.